Praise the Lord. Okay, well, uh, this morning our teaching is from the second half of 1 Samuel chapter 23, verses 14 to 29. So if you can open up your Bibles there, that's our manner for this morning. And as you turn to the Word of God, let's bow our head in prayer. Father God, I recognize this morning that we are nothing without you. Lord, we need you to come and fill this place with your presence, to anoint me so that as I speak, it wouldn't be just the thoughts of man, but Lord, it would be you communicating your thoughts to us all. I need to hear from you. We all need to hear from you. Lord, I pray that you'd open your word to us this morning and speak life into our spirits, um, food for our hearts and our minds, that we might be built up and encouraged in the faith and go away with things that would stimulate us towards a more righteous lifestyle, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're going to start things off with a map. Everybody loves a map. It gives you a sense of where we are and what's happening. Uh, I don't know how many of these places you recognize. You've got up the top there Ramah. Anybody remember who lived in Ramah? Samuel, absolutely. And then we've got uh, Gibeah. Who, who came from Gibeah? Saul, absolutely. What happened at Nob? Anybody remember what happened at Nob? Massacre of the priests, absolutely. Now, Jerusalem wasn't called Jerusalem at this moment in time. It was owned by the Jebusites and it was called Jebus. Um, later on, David would conquer that and rename it Jerusalem. Further south, we've got Bethlehem. We all know that that's a place of significance, especially this time of year. Gath is where a certain giant came from, and it's one of the five cities of the Philistines. And then we've got Adullam, where the cave was, where David hid out. And we've got a few other places there that we will come into as the study goes on. But we've got Keilah. Now, Keilah is where we were last time in the first 13 verses of chapter 23. And this was a walled city, but uh, Philistine raiders had come in to attack that city. And uh, instead of the people of Keilah um, turning to Saul to come and bring deliverance, they turned to uh, David and his 600 men to come and to deliver them from the Philistines. David sought the Lord with the ephod. The Lord said, go. The people were, his, his 600 men were a bit uncertain. And so he sought the Lord a second time saying, Lord, can you confirm your word to your people? God confirmed the word. Then they went as one to be able to deliver the people of Keilah from the Philistines. Now, David thought maybe he could use Keilah as a stronghold, a place for him to, to kind of hunker down for a bit. But the Lord showed him that Saul was on his way and that the people of Keilah would not protect him from Saul. They would give him over to Saul. So David fled from Keilah and he went to Ziph, the wilderness of Ziph. And there you got Ziph, but to the right, in this area there, you've got the wilderness of Judea. And it's made up of a number of different kind of places uh, all called wilderness. The wilderness of Ziph is just right to the city of Ziph and there in the mountains and strongholds there David hid. And it is while he's there we're going to find this morning that Jonathan the son of Saul, David's best friend, his covenant friend, would come and encourage David in the Lord. 
We're going to see, obviously, up north, there's Gibeah. That's King, uh, King's, where King Saul's fortress is. There are archaeological remains of that fortress that you can go and see today. And it's from there that Saul is based and he rules his kingdom. He hears from a report from the Ziphites that David is in the wilderness of Ziph. And so he's going to come from Gibeah all the way down to Ziph to get David. David will flee to Maon, the wilderness of Maon, but there Saul is going to trap David. And David is going to be in a position where there is no way out. And come the end, we will find ourselves in En Gedi. And we will cover the area of En Gedi more detail. Next time in chapter 24, it's where Saul goes to relieve himself and David cuts off a corner of his garment, a corner of his robe. So this is the geographical setting where um, our text is set this morning. And I think with that in our mind, you can see more clearly what we're talking about. Now, I want to start off, though, before we read the passage properly, just to talk a little bit about the character of Saul. And uh, before I do that, I need to do something that I've never done before. There's a, uh, there's a verse in Scripture that's taken on new meaning to me recently. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. It says that outwardly we're wasting away, inwardly we're being renewed day by day. Anybody? Does that witness with anybody? You're outwardly wasting away, but inwardly being renewed day by day? I found that reading my phone a bit like this, an ingredients on packets... So I had to go to Specsavers and I found that it was my eyes wasting away. And so, you know, as I put on the new man and I take off the old man, um, still working out how these things work. I want to talk about, uh, a little bit about the character of David using, uh, I think, five verses. It says here, Saul had come out to seek David, David's life. Saul had come out to seek his, that is David's, life. See, David was the Lord's anointed. No, I do need to pick him on. Yet Saul had no regard for the things of the people of God, did he? He wanted to kill the man of God. Look at the character of Saul here. He wanted to kill the man of God. And then we got here. Saul sought him, that is David, every day. So Saul was relentless in his deadly pursuit of David. He was a man obsessed. He ate and slept and drunk uh, murderous hatred towards David, where almost all else was subsidiary uh, to this one goal to get David. And then there we see this other verse, and Saul was told that David had gone to Keilah. So Saul said, God has delivered him into my hand. When the Philistines raided Keilah, Saul was not on hand to do his duty and deliver the people. It fell to David to bring deliverance. But instead of Saul being grateful for David's intervention, he used it as an opportunity to pursue his quarry. Note Saul's word, God has delivered him into my hand. This speaks of Saul's deluded state of mind. Deluded that God was somehow on his side and deluded that he could somehow kill the Lord's anointed. It's these words, uh, it's in these words that Saul is clearly masquerading as a godly man 
but he's not an agent of light. He's actually an agent of darkness. And then here in verse 8 we read, Then Saul called all the people together for war to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. When Saul found David was in Keilah, what was his response to besiege Keilah? The care of Keilah was not a consideration to him. If getting David meant Keilah had to fall, then so be it. The citizens of Keilah were collateral damage in his pursuit of David. And then here in verse 21 of chapter 22, Saul has killed the Lord's priests. Saul was not only an enemy of David and the citizens of Keilah, he was an enemy of the priests of God, committing a near genocide of the priesthood, save Abiathar who fled and went to David's banner. This is the character of Saul here, and it could be summed up like this. He sought, Saul sought to kill God's anointed. He was relentless in his attack on the man of God. He was deluded into thinking he could win. He masqueraded as an agent of light. He did not care for the children of God, and he slew without compunction the priesthood of God. What or who is this a character depiction of? Hmm? Satan. Satan, Hamas, Antichrist. That's the spirit that's behind Saul. That is what is working there. This is a satanic attack upon David. And this is what David is facing. A deep, dark, spiritual attack on a daily basis. Can you imagine the weight of pressure that David is under? That he's having to face this day after day. And what's more, the Lord has permitted this. Remember, it was the Lord who chose David. It was the Lord who anointed David. And it was the Lord who took the Holy Spirit from Saul and sent an unclean spirit to torment Saul. The Lord was behind all of this. And he is using this situation to train and shape the character of David. You see, David is not only in a physical wilderness, he is in a spiritual wilderness as well. And he's in a spiritual wilderness with no way of escape. And the wilderness is always God's testing and purifying ground. And there will come times when God places you in a spiritual wilderness where there'll be no way of escape, nothing that you can do to get you out of that place. And it just feels as if you're being bombarded on a daily basis from every direction and there's no way of escape. It just feels as if you are under constant attack and there is no place for the rest of your, of your heart and your mind. But this, is a, this, this, this season in your life is there for a purpose. For God to deal with your life, to make you into the person God wants you to be. Um, the person that God wants David to be is a king, and he wants to prepare him for that role. But we're all a real priest, royal priesthood. We're all destined to get a crown. 
And so God will do that same work in our lives too. I remember when I was in a wilderness praying and talking to the Lord, and I said, Lord, it feels like I'm in a big pit and the sides are made like treacle. And the more I grab and grasp to try to get out, the more my hands just go through the treacle and I can't get out. I felt powerless to do anything but my own, by my own strength. The only way I could get through was by leaning and trusting upon the Lord. And the only way that David can get through this is by leaning and relying upon the Lord. And so the Lord is putting in David in increasingly pressurized situations, forcing him to trust and rely upon the Lord in, 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 in a way that um, his faith deepens and his reliance upon the things of the world and of the flesh and of the man just comes to naught. So that's the scenario we're in. Let's start off with our first two verses, verses 14 to 15. And David stayed in strongholds in the wilderness and remained in the mountains in the wilderness of Ziph. Saul sought him every day, but God did not deliver him into his hand. So David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life, and David was in the wilderness of Ziph in a forest. Just that verse there. Saul sought him every day. He was relentless. But praise God, God did not deliver him into his hand. God's hand was on David every single day. Despite the murderous persistence with which Saul sought David's life, God is in control of all that is happening. And we need to remember this. God is in control of all that is happening. God did not deliver David into Saul's hand. And being in God's will is not always the most comfortable place to be. Amen. Being in God's will is not always the most comfortable place to be, but it is the safest place to be. Being in God's will oftentimes is painfully uncomfortable, to be quite frank with you, because to experience spiritual growth, God needs to push you out of your comfort zone into the wilderness zone where you are forced to rely on him. And at the time, you don't like it, you hate it, you, you wriggle and squirm, you want to get out. But when you look back, you're so very grateful for that wilderness zone, for the good that it's wrought in your life. And David has learned to rely on God, and he has relied on God in the matter of Keilah, and we will soon see how he relies on God in the matter of Ziph. Now, Ziph there is a city in the tribal territory of Judah. It's approximately 19 miles south of Jerusalem. To the east, as I said, is the wilderness of Judah. It's a rugged landscape, arid with uh, sparse vegetation. Doesn't seem like a very hospitable place to me. And today it's largely desert in nature. Now, King Herod built two fortresses there. Uh, one is called Herodium. Has anybody visited Herodium? I didn't even know it existed until I started studying and researching it. It looks fascinating to me. And the other one, anybody know the other uh, fortress he built? Did I hear? Masada, absolutely. Now Masada, I have been to. Um, you can take a cable car or you can take the steps. Um, I took the steps when I went, but I think maybe next time I'll take the cable car. <laughs> Um, but this is the region where John the Baptist uh, preached in 
as well. And as you can see in the background, it's just wilderness. It's dry, arid space. I always remember going to Israel and on, on the tour, there were these, these women and saying, oh, isn't it wonderful? Isn't it amazing? I just feel the presence. It's so spiritual here. And I was looking around and thinking, guys, it's not as nice as East Sussex though, is it really? Um, there's, there is little water supply or clear uh, travel routes through this area of the world. And as such, it has been largely uninhabited throughout history. Uh, but there is a large number of wadis. These are deep ravines that are dry but gather water in the rainy season. Uh, the biggest one here is Nahal Daga. And you can see here the big ravine there, completely dry and arid, but during the rainy season it fills up with water and there's a stream that goes through where you can draw water from. Um, and David took refuge in this inhospitable terrain, hiding in wadis and caves. And we're told David was in the wilderness of Ziph, in a forest. Now I don't see a forest there, did anybody see a forest? Looks like the last place you're likely to see a tree to me. But the thing is, did you know in ancient times the land of Israel was heavily forested? Ephraim and Manasseh were called the forest country in Joshua chapter 17. In Solomon's day we are told there was an abundance of sycamore trees in the lowland and Hermon was famous for its fern trees and in Judah you had the king's forest with enough wood to be able to help with the construction of the second temple, the walls and the gates of Jerusalem. So what happened? Where are these forests today? Well there are still forests and woodlands in Israel but nothing like it once was. We know that forests were cut down by the Ottomans to supply wood for ships and later on forests and woods were cut down for fuel, for steam trains and so forth. But such was the devastation that hit that land that when the first immigrants from Russia arrived in Palestine in, 18, in the 1880s they started to give back reports of what an arid land it was, the marshlands that were there, just how war-torn and um, uh, horrible the land was. Here in um, a biography about Ben-Gurion, one of the people that was principally responsible for getting the State of Israel established, who went to Israel for the first time in 1906, then called Palestine. He said, centuries of war, neglect and destruction had left ugly scars on the land once so lavishly praised by biblical scribes. The coastal plain and other lowlands were filled with swamps. A combination of blazing sun and heavy rains had eroded the hillsides, long since stripped of their soil and thick woodlands. It would seem that just as when a person rejects the Messiah, they become barren and fruitless, so when Israel rejected their Messiah, it too became barren and fruitless. But it will not always be like this. The Bible foresees a time when not only the Messiah returns to Israel, but rivers and fish, trees and fruit will return to the land as well. And I've just picked out this passage from Ezekiel 47, 
to, to just to tell you a little bit about what that time will be like. This is talking about uh, the Messianic Kingdom, the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ when Jesus returns to establish his rule and reign upon the earth. There will be a Greek geographical shift. We'll see that mountains will be lowered and valleys will be raised. There will be a river that runs from the Mediterranean to the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea will be purified. Uh, life will come to the Dead Sea again. And I'll just read this to you. Ezekiel 47, 6 to 12. And he said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? And then he brought me and returned me to the bank of the river. And when I returned there, along the bank of the river were very many trees on one side and the other. And then he said to me, This water flows toward the eastern region, goes down into the valley and enters the sea, where it reaches the sea. Its waters are healed. And it shall be that every living thing that moves, wherever the river goes, will live. There will be a very great multitude of fish, because these waters go there. For they will be healed, and everything will live wherever the river goes. It shall be that fishermen will stand by it from Engedi to Engelaim. There will be places for spreading their nets. Their fish will be of the same kinds as the fish of the great sea, exceedingly many. The great sea is the Mediterranean, and he's talking about the same sort of fish that you find in the Mediterranean Sea you'll find in the Dead Sea. But its swamps and marshes will not be healed. They will be given over to salt. Along the bank of the river, on this side and that, will grow all kinds of trees used for food. Their leaves will not wither, and their fruit will not fail. They will bear fruit every month because their water flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for medicine. And just as the Messiah can transform your dry and arid life to make you fruitful and abundant, when the Messiah returns to Israel, he'll transform the land to make that fruitful and abundant too. Anyway, David hid with his 600 men in the wilderness of Ziph in a forest. And uh, the secret to David's continued survival was not a gold star in playing hide-and-seek, uh, but as the word of God declares, God did not deliver him into his hand. The Lord was his refuge. And at some point, you will find yourself in the wilderness, and life will be tough, arid, and dry. But against all odds, God will preserve you and protect you. Let me say that again. God will preserve you and protect you. Colossians 3.3 3, For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Christ is your ziff. Christ is your wadi. Christ is your forest in the wilderness. You are safe all the while you are hid with him. Moving on to verses 16 and 17, we read this. Then Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David in the woods and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Even my father Saul knows that. Now, isn't this incredible? Saul sought David every day, but couldn't find him. Jonathan found David straight away. The Lord kept David from danger, but opened the door for encouragement. How wonderful is that? How wonderful is that? And what encouragement that in one of David's darkest hours, God brings his closest friend and mentor to strengthen him. And if you are living in God's will, 
God will keep you from things. He'll keep you from threats. He'll keep you from dangers. Things that you are even aware of, he will protect you from. But at the same time, he will open up the door for encouragement to reach you. Isn't God good to you? God is good. Amen. Now, how did Jonathan encourage David? How did he strengthen his hand in God? Did he say, man up, David, you'll get through this? Or did he say, cheer up, David, it'll be all right in the end? No, he didn't come with platitudes or empty words. How do you encourage a fellow believer when they're in the midst of trial? You remind them of the promises of God. You remind them of the promises of God. And I want you to remember this. If you see a brother in a trial, in a difficult place, don't give them platitudes. Don't give them a punch on the shoulder and say, you'll get through this. Remind them of the promises of God. Give them something solid to anchor their heart and their soul to. Something that will, will be a rudder to steer them through the difficult situation that they're facing. Now, there are four statements that Jonathan makes. Here we go. And we're going to play a quick game of true and false. So the first statement he says is, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. Hands up who thinks that's true. Hands up who thinks that's false. Okay, let's try that again. Hands up if you think that's true. Hands up if you think that's false. We've got nobody for false. It is true. It is true. Okay, how about the next one? You shall be king over Israel. Hands up if you think that's true. That's good. Hands up if you think that's false. No. Well done. Two for two for true. How about the third one? And I shall be next to you. Hands up for true. I've got some. And hands up for false. Oh, we got it divided, but there was more for false. I'm sorry, Johnny, you were, you were, you were in the wrong camp there. Sorry? Yeah. Will Jonathan be next to David when he becomes king of Israel? Maybe not, no. <laughs> we'll get to that in a minute. And then finally, even my father Saul knows that. True? False? Oh, a little bit of wavering there. It's true. Saul knew that uh, David was destined to become king. Let's look at these a little bit more. And do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. This demonstrates Jonathan's confidence in God and his promises. He knew that God had anointed David to be king. And he knew that the day would come to pass when he would come to be king. And so clearly, Saul would not succeed in finding David. So Jonathan encourages David to stand on the promises of God. Stand on the promise that you have been anointed. Stand on the promise that you'll be king. Stand on the promise that Saul will not be able to lay his hands upon you because of what the Lord said will be. And when you are called upon to strengthen the hand of a fellow believer in God, remind them to stand on the promises of God. And where are the promises of God found? In Scripture, in the Word of God. 
Invariably, whenever I go to speak to another brother in the Lord, they want some advice or discuss a certain subject, I'm always asking the Lord, please can you give me a scripture for that individual, something solid that I can give to them. Because my words, really, well, I wouldn't pay tuppence for my words. We want to hear the word of God. That's what really anchors us. And then we see here the second thing he says is, you shall be king over Israel. Now, the thought of being king must have been the furthest thing from David's mind at this moment in time. At that moment, hunkered down in some wooded glade in the wilderness, the throne of Israel is an apparent impossibility to David. Yet Jonathan has faith in what God has declared. You know, it's as if Jonathan has faith where David is struggling in his faith. And so Jonathan expresses that faith to stir up the faith in his friend. And he encourages David to walk by faith and not by sight. And when you are called upon to strengthen the hand of a fellow believer in God, use your faith to stir up the faith in your brother or sister. Encourage them to walk by faith and not by sight. Then the third thing he says is, and I shall be next to you. And I don't know, I can... I can imagine the private times and conversations Jonathan and David shared, how they reinforced God's word and promises to one another. And David looked forward to a time when the conflict would finally be at an end and he would assume the throne. And Jonathan looked forward to a time when he no longer served a corrupt king, but a godly king. He can't wait for that day where he sees David on the throne and he'll stand next to him. But alas, it was not to be. Jonathan didn't know he would die before David ascended the throne. However, in this statement, I shall be next to you, we see both submission and support. Submission in that sense that despite being senior in years and despite Jonathan being the crown prince, Jonathan moves in submission to the will of God. He doesn't look for status in the eyes of man but he looks for status in the eyes of God. He yields to what God's will is. And this is a lesson for you. You must look for status in the eyes of God, not in the eyes of man. Let God establish you. Do not rely on the mechanisms of men. But it also shows Jonathan's support. Uh, he has been with David his entire public life, hasn't he, old Jonathan? First having his soul knit to David after his fight with Goliath, defending David's innocence to his father, aiding David to escape to safely, safety, and now coming to him in his hour of need. It's as if he's saying, I've been next to you thus far, David, and I'll be next to you until the end. And when you are called upon to strengthen the hand of a fellow believer in God, sometimes there is nothing you can say, save I'll stand next to you. I'm with you in this. And just that solid support, that unwavering companionship is what sometimes people need. And then the fourth thing that Jonathan says is, even my father, Saul, knows that. You see, Saul is operating with a seared conscience. He knows what God has promised and planned, yet he walks in defiance of that revealed will how can a person know the will of God but live in defiance of God? You can think about that. How can, 
a person like Saul know the will of God but live in defiance of God? Let's just take a moment and take a step back. Who here has ever known what God's will is for them but has not done it? Anybody want to put their hand up? Anybody here ever known what God's will is for their life but not done it? I can put myself in that camp. I remember back in the 90s, having done a year's voluntary work, coming back and knowing that I needed to find a church to be, uh, to be part of every Sunday morning. And I knew the Lord had directed me to Paddockwood Christian Fellowship. I knew that's where God wanted me to go. Do you know what I did? I went to Tunbridge Wells Christian Fellowship, and I went to Tunbridge Wells Baptist Church, and then I went to this church and that church. I went to pretty much every other church apart from Paddockwood Christian Fellowship. I don't know what it was, but there was a defiance within me. They didn't want to go down the path God wanted me to, but I, I wanted to forge my own path. I wanted to serve God on my terms. But you know what? There was no peace, no rest, until I yielded to God and I went to where he wanted me to go. You know, to, to know the will of God and to not do it is just sheer folly. If you know what the Lord is saying to you, if you know how the Lord is leading and guiding you, the fastest place to peace and blessing is to yield your life to him and say, yes, Lord. Okay, then, let's move forward. Where are we? There we are, verse 18. So the two of them made a covenant before the Lord, and David stayed in the woods, and Jonathan went to his own house. Now, commentators are divided as to whether this is a renewal of their previous covenant or whether this is the cutting of a new covenant. Now, you can go away and make your own opinion about that. And if you disagree with me, that's absolutely fine. But I'm persuaded that this is a new covenant established between David and uh, Jonathan. Um, it's a covenant that agrees that when David becomes king, Jonathan will serve as his right-hand man, his chief of staff, if you will. It's building upon the things that Jonathan has encouraged David in. And when we look at the lives of David and Jonathan, I see that there are actually three covenants that were made between these men. The first is found in 1 Samuel chapter 18, and uh, I call that a covenant of love. This is when Jonathan's heart was knit to David's and they made a covenant together. The second covenant they made is seen in 1 Samuel chapter 20. I call this a covenant of loyalty because this is when uh, David promised to look after uh, Jonathan's family and Jonathan promised to look after David. So there was a loyalty there between the two of them. And then the third covenant is what we see here in 1 Samuel chapter 23, a covenant of longing, a covenant that looked to the future where David would be king and uh, Jonathan would serve underneath him. And I think to myself, what a humble man Jonathan is. Um, now, there are two types of covenant that you'll find in the Bible. One is called a suzerain uh, vassal covenant. The other one's called a parity covenant. I've talked about these before. Typically, if a country went and invaded another country, took over with it, took it over, it would establish a suzerain vassal um, covenant where the more dominant power would be the suzerain and the, uh, the lesser power, the, the nation that had been overwhelmed, would be the vassal. The vassal would serve the suzerain 
and in return the suzerain would perhaps protect that country. And so there would be the senior and the um, lesser people in the covenant. Then you've got a parity covenant, where instead of it being just senior and lesser, so an imbalanced kind of a covenant between two imbalanced powers, one greater, one weaker, this was parity, where people were on the same level, where there was a common ground, a common strength between them. So these two types of covenant. Now what's interesting to me is when I look at these three covenants, when the covenant uh, in uh, chapter 18 was established between Jonathan and David, Jonathan was in the senior position, being in the, the armies of Saul, being in a position of authority, being the crown prince, and David was just this lad who'd gone to fight Goliath. This was a suzerain vassal covenant where Jonathan was senior and David was the lesser. But when it came to the second covenant, this covenant of loyalty in 1 Samuel 20, it was a parity covenant because the promises made were equal. David would look after the family of Jonathan and Jonathan would look after David and his family. But when we get to this third covenant, this covenant of longing in chapter 23, David is now senior and Jonathan is the lesser because it's looking forward to when David is king and Jonathan would serve underneath him. And so can you see the transition, the walk in Jonathan? He's gone from being the senior to being on the same level to being the lesser. He is decreasing as David is increasing. And you think, what a humble man this Jonathan is. He is a mighty man of God. He is to David what John the Baptist was to Jesus. He prepared the way of the Lord. He prepared the way of the King. He was quite literally the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Here was Jonathan crying in the wilderness to David. It's quite beautiful, this journey that Jonathan's gone on. And uh, I just think it's just so sad that Jonathan never got to see his best friend take that throne. Jonathan did not live to see this third covenant fulfilled. And in fact, this is the last time these two men will see each other. Jonathan will die fighting alongside his father in a few chapters' time. But you know, it gives me sober reflection to think, you will have people that God brings into your life that make a life-impacting difference, just the way that Jonathan did to David. Yet sadly, they will die before God brings you to the place he has prepared for you. You know, I can look back upon people that have spoken into my life, that God has brought into my life, that have made a life-impacting difference, and I'd love to show them, look what the Lord's done, but they're no longer here, they're with the Lord. There are God's servants for a season. Okay, moving forward to verse 19 to 23, we read this. Then the Ziphites came up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is David not hiding with us in strongholds in the woods in the hill of Hakilah, which is, in, is on the south of Jeshimon? Now therefore, O king, come down according to all the desire of your soul to come down, and our part shall be to deliver him into the king's hand. And Saul said, Blessed are you of the Lord, for you have compassion on me. Please go and find out for sure and see the place where he is, his hideout is. And who has seen him there? For I am told he is very crafty. See therefore and take knowledge of all the lurking places where he hides and come back to me with certainty 
and I will go with you. And it shall be if he's in the land that I will search for him throughout all the lands, clans of Judah. So now our attention is drawn to these godless Ziphites who betray one from their own tribe in an attempt to curry favour with King Saul. And I don't know whether you're like me, but when I read about these Ziphites, my blood starts to boil. Don't you just hate them? Don't you just hope that they get everything that's coming to them, the fact that they betray David like this? And a delegation from Ziph uh, go north to Saul at Gibeah, and there they provide the king with intelligence of where David is hiding. And as if things aren't bad enough for David already, people from his own tribe sell him out. They give Saul a near enough GPS location of David. He's in the woods, in the hill of Hakilah, which is on the south of Jeshimon. I mean, you can't get any more accurate than that. What a bunch of swine. And then these sycophants suck up big time to uh, Saul. Oh, king, come down according to all the desire of your soul. Our part shall be to deliver him into the king's hand. And what a bunch of suck-ups. And Saul, as you can imagine, is overjoyed at this, at these newly found allies and this new fa- newly found allegiance. And he responds with a blessing. Blessed are you of the Lord, for you have compassion on me. Blessed are you of the Lord, for you have compassion upon me. This shows us how spiritually warped Saul was. That he would suggest the Lord's blessing on the betrayal of these Ziphites. I mean, he really does have a screw loose. And, but this is also has the sound and the sense of self-pity about it, doesn't it? For you have compassion on me. It's as if Saul sees himself as the victim and everyone is against me. Oh, thank you, O Ziphites, for having compassion upon me and telling me where David is. Saul is just one twisted individual and it's all about him, him, him. And he is just completely unaware of the effect and the influence he has upon other people. But Saul is is also cautious. You know, once before he heard of David's whereabouts, when David was in Keilah. And he marshaled his forces to lay siege to Keilah, only to find that when he got there, David had upped and gone, making Saul look like a fool. So Saul put this down to David's craftiness. He's crafty, he says. When in truth, it's down to God's protection, of course. However, not wanting to be made look like a fool once again, Saul asked for confirmation of David's location. He wants to know where his hideout is. He wants to know the possible places he would flee to. And then once he has this information, he will come down to seek out this, this nuisance called David. But listen to the blood thrust in Saul. If he is in the land, that I will search for him throughout all the clans of Judah. Saul is determined to hunt David until he is found. He is not going to rest easy until he is hunted down throughout all the clans of Judah and located this man. He won't stop until the job is done. And you kind of feel the net closing in on David. His days are numbered. Saul knows exactly where he is. He's got this this single-mindedness to get him. And I wonder, what did David think and what did David feel at this moment in time well we 
don't have to wonder because uh, we actually have David's thoughts and feelings here in Psalm 54. Let's read this together. And we know that it's at this time because of the subheading to the psalm. Psalm 54, to the chief musician with stringed instruments, a contemplation of David, when the Ziphites went and said to Saul, is David not hiding with us? Save me, O God, by your name, and vindicate me by your strength. Hear my prayer, O God, give ear to, my, to the words of my mouth. For strangers have risen up against me, and oppressors have sought after my life. They have not set God before them. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is with those who uphold my life. He will repay my enemies for their evil, cut them off in truth. I will freely sacrifice to you. I will praise your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me out of all trouble, and my heart... Excuse me, my eye has seen its desire upon my enemies. David's not running around, flailing his arms in panic. He makes God his confidence. He makes God his refuge. He makes God his trust. He says, save me, O God, by your name. Hear my prayer, O God. Behold, God is my helper. And this is what the wilderness does. It forces you to rely upon God. It forces you to take refuge in God. It forces you to place God as your strength because everything else that you cling to is like treacle. It just doesn't get you anywhere. And you come through that time back to ordinary life and existence and you'll find that your strength in the Lord, your service to the Lord has soared because God has trained you in that wilderness experience. It's like the SAS. You know when they train the SAS, they put them in conditions much more extreme and harsher than they're ever expected to encounter in the field, so that when they come to being in the field, it's like water of a duck's back doing what they're doing. Now to us, we look at what the SAS is doing, and we think to yourself, how can we do that? But that's because they're trained to extreme level. But we are God's SAS. And he'll train us to that extreme level so that when we're faced with situations, we can cope with it by faith and in his strength. Okay then. So this isn't just a psalm, it's the fervent and effectual prayer of a righteous man, is it not? It's the words of a man who is encouraging himself in the Lord. You know, Jonathan may well have strengthened him in the Lord, but the the mature believer will not rely upon the words of men. The mature believer will make God his helper. Okay, moving on in our text to... Uh, I keep on losing my place. Verses 24 and 25. So they arose and went to Ziph before Saul, but David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon, in the plain of the south of Jeshimon. When Saul and his men went to seek him, they told David. Therefore he went down to the rock and stayed in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued David in the wilderness of Maon. So let's see, we've got that map there. David receives intelligence concerning Saul's approach. So he moves south to the wilderness of Maon. And he hides at a location so well known it is simply called the rock. 
in wilderness of nothing but rocks. This has got to be some kind of special rock, I reckon. Uh, but the armies of Saul are closing in, and David is in the wilderness of Maon. And the people from Ziph have pinpointed David's location, and they've told Saul, and now David is within his grasp. So, there we are. We see the, how they've, um, the people are from uh, Ziph have come down from Gibeah to Ziph. They've pinpointed uh, David's location. David has gone from Ziph to Maon, and now here comes Saul to close in upon David at Maon. It's getting close to D-Day. And verse 26, we read this. Then Saul went on one side of the mountain, and David his men on the other side of the mountain. So David made haste to get away from Saul, for Saul and his men were encircling David and his men to take them. Now let's be clear, this is not a mountain as we would know a mountain. This is more a hill. Um, but David is on one side of the mountain. Saul is on the other side of the mountain. And Saul sends one half of his forces to the left and one half to the right. He is encircling this hill, this mountain, with David. And you can just like a pincer movement. And you can just see how Saul's forces, which far outweigh uh, David's, are closing in. And David has got absolutely nowhere to run to, nowhere to hide. Saul has finally caught up with him. And David's number is finally up. And I just want to end it there just for the cliffhanger, but I can't. I've got to carry on. Verses 27 and 28, where we read, But a messenger came to Saul, saying, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have invaded the land. Therefore Saul returned from pursuing David, and they went against the Philistines, so they called that place the Rock of escape. So just as the sword was about to fall on David, an urgent message arrives demanding Saul's immediate attention. The Philistines have invaded the land and suddenly Saul drops everything and goes to fight the Philistines. I mean, isn't it amazing? Praise God for the most unexpected deliverance. And you know, considering Saul's singular resolve to hunt down David at the expense of all else, and considering Saul's previous lack of concern uh, or haste to rescue Keilah, what is it about this Philistine incursion that makes Saul break off the chase in such a dramatic fashion? Well, I'm inclined to think it's because this Philistine incursion is close to Saul's home in Gibeah. And when his, throne, when his home is threatened, that's what makes him leave. But isn't this just incredible? David first delivers Keilah of the Philistines. Now the Philistines deliver David of Saul. Doesn't this just show that the Lord is in control? That he brings help from the most unexpected quarters? Even when all hope appears to be gone, the Lord can bring provision and deliverance from the most unexpected places. As God's anointed, you will face times when the untold odds are stacked up against you. But let me tell you, God is faithful and God is in control. Psalm 94 verse 14 says, For the Lord will not cast off his people, 
nor will he forsake his inheritance. God will not cast you off and he will not forsake you, no matter how dark, no matter how difficult. If you are in the right place with God, the Lord will watch over you and protect you. And so we close with our very last verse, verse 2019, verse 29. Then David went up from there and dwelt in strongholds at En Gedi. There we go. Have we got En Gedi there? Yes. And um, now David heads east down to Ged En Gedi near the Dead Sea. En Gedi is made up of two words uh, En, which means fountain or spring, and Gedi, which means uh, a goat kid, uh, a young goat. Uh, it basically actually means fountain of the goat. And it is aptly named because there are two things in abundance there. There are freshwater springs, freshwater fountains, and there are wild, tasty goats there as well. So it was aptly named. It's a beautiful location. It's uh, 1,388 feet uh, uh, below sea level with many caves for shelter. And it's going to be in a cave just like that one in the bottom right where uh, David in chapter 24 cuts off a part of Saul's robe. Um, there are a number of freshwater streams which feed two rivers there in Engedi. I've not been there, but I know that Abby has, and she said it is absolutely gorgeous. And there is rich vegetation and trees in this place as well. You have fig trees, you can grow watermelons in the winter, and there are date palms there as well. And even today, there are wild goats who roam the area. And so we're going to leave David and his 600 men relocated to Engedi near the Dead Sea, barbecuing wild goat, drinking cool spring water, munching on wild figs and dates. And I wonder if, as his men are eating and laughing and resting, David looks up and in the distance he can see that rock of escape where he was almost captured. And it's a lasting monument to how God is guiding him and protecting him, the Lord's anointed. Amen. Father God, we thank you for your word, and I pray that, Lord, you would take that which I've shared and multiply its blessings to our hearts and our minds. I thank you, Lord, that your word does not return void, and that, Lord, you'd continue to cause it to grow, to bless, to spread out into our lives, to strengthen us, and help us, Lord, to always make you our refuge, to rely first and foremost upon you, ahead of any other man or situation knowing, Lord, that you are faithful, that you are in control, and that you'll never let us down. Amen.